Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. But what real estate investing has allowed us to do is essentially uh, have ultimate freedom. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors, and welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Jennifer Beatles. Jennifer has over 250 units across seven states. She was just telling me before the show how they just got back from a a stint over in Europe and they've been to, I think, 28 countries over the past few years. So obviously she's, uh, you know, fulfilling the goal of living a financially free life and traveling the world on her real estate. So Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. We're excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Kat. I'm super excited to be here and share my story today. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's start there. Let's start with a little bit more about who you are and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, originally from Seattle, Washington, the Pacific Northwest. And uh, for about nine months, uh, I've been in Phoenix, Arizona. So we re- recently relocated. Uh, but prior to that, we spent about 18 months traveling. And so we, we landed here in Phoenix. Um, but I became an investor. My, my first investment was purchased in uh, 2007. And the first, I would say maybe five years, we kind of dabbled between spec home building, uh, flipping, um, doing just kind of a lot of uh, random projects, really just trying to figure out what niche would be the most profitable for us. Uh, My husband was in the construction industry. I uh, had gotten into real estate uh, working for a builder in 2007. So really, we we just kind of went all in. Um, but we found what really would provide us the lifestyle and the freedom that we were after was small value add multifamily. And so for the first nine years, we actually just stayed in our own backyard, uh, investing north of Seattle, again, doing some small multifamily building. We were doing a lot of bird deals. So buying really ugly properties, fixing them up, refinancing them, you know, having cash flowing tenant, having tenants pay the mortgage, of course, high cash flow. And then when the cap rates started to get, you know, really low and the deals kind of started to dry up in our local market, we started to look outside of Seattle. We actually made our first investment in the Indianapolis area, uh, right in your backyard, Kent. Yeah, uh, in go Indy. Green- <laughs> yeah, in, in Greenwood, Indiana. 
uh, had never been to Indianapolis, knew nobody in that market, um, had bought this duplex site unseen. I think it was like 155,000. We spent about $19,000 on the renovation, uh, crawl space remediation, attic remediation, full interiors. We ended up renting it out for, I think it was about 2235 and realized for the first time that we could actually scale this model. Uh, it was something that, again, you know, prior to that, my husband was managing these projects. We were self-managing and um, that really kind of, I guess, you know, provided that proof of concept for us, which was we can actually, again, scale this outside of Seattle. We don't have to continue to invest locally. Uh, the real estate was so expensive in our local market. And so uh, now we're actually in eight states. We just closed a deal in Kentucky. I know it's another market that you're in uh, just last week. And so we're at about, I think, 281 units uh, in eight different states. Um, but what real estate investing has allowed us to do is essentially uh, have ultimate freedom. And so that, you know, there was no longer any need for us to live in Seattle. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of asked ourselves that question is, you know, why are we living here? We don't enjoy the rain. We don't enjoy, you know, the climate and the weather and the traffic and, you know, the expensive market. So we were able to relocate here and then just continue investing all across the country. Wow. Well, that that's an awesome story. And I think you guys have been able to very quickly scale up. You've been able to do some things that are probably pretty scary to most that we want to talk about. Um, but it sounds like you've, you've gone through a few different approaches, you know, a few different strategies, right. A few different asset classes. So, um, you know, what made you eventually land on kind of these, I'd say small to mid-sized multifamilies. Like, like what was it that draw you to those properties? Yeah. Um, you know, there was a moment in, uh, I would say, I think it was maybe about 2015. And my husband and I, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of rental properties. Um, and the purpose for us investing was to actually fund our ideal lifestyle and have some freedom. And there was a moment, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, and we were having a big barbecue at our house and everyone was over. And then we get a call from a tenant that the uh, there's something wrong with the septic. And so there's basically like septic coming up through the bathtub. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a pretty big urgent issue. You know, so my husband's on the phone trying to call an emergency plumber. He ends up leaving the barbecue and going over there to try to troubleshoot what was going on. And then when he came back, you know, everyone had left. And we looked at each other and we said, I think we're doing this wrong. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. we're somehow, uh, you know, we, we, the purpose was to have freedom, but we have no freedom. If, if we can't enjoy a barbecue on Memorial Day weekend, then obviously we're doing some things wrong. And so we really kind of sat down and, and clarified the purpose and clarified the direction that we wanted to go with our lifestyle. And also, you know, with uh, getting some clarity around what types of investments we wanted to be doing. And so at that point, we stopped flipping. We realized that that was another job. We realized that we couldn't, you know, go leave on vacation and, you know, again, have this freedom because we, we needed to manage these projects. It was just a lot of work, a lot of time and effort. Very, very profitable, of course, mm -hmm. but it, it just took a lot of time. And so we said, well, what would it look like if we did bigger multifamily projects, very similar to how we run these flips, 
but other people do the work and we're just kind of playing asset manager as opposed to operator. There's a really big difference, kind of, as you know, between yeah. asset management and operations. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, also having other people source and find the deals for us. And so we really st we stopped spec home building. We stopped pretty much anything that was uh, kind of working as an operator mm -hmm. and essentially trading, you know, time for money and focusing more on, again, asset management and investing. And so it was really clear to us that the path was these value-add multifamily properties where we could essentially you know, acquire the asset, add value, improve the NOI, reduce the expenses, um, you know, increase the revenue. Um, and then that also allowed us to control the value of the asset. So up until that point, we had mostly stayed residential. So we mm -hmm. were buying you know, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, um, and that was really our bread and butter. We really understood how the financing worked. Uh, we had a loan strategy where he would buy a property and put it only in his name. And then I would buy the next property and put it only in my name so that we could get 10 conventional loans each to get to our 20 max. And so we really just kind of stayed in that lane for quite some time until we realized the power and the ease of getting these commercial loans mm -hmm. and then how easy it was to refinance, you know, essentially once you've improved the value, of course. Um, and so then we started moving and gravitating in that direction. Yeah. I, I love that story because it's, uh, I think it's something a lot of us go, go through, right. I went through a similar story of doing, doing fix and flips and single families and different things and then graduating to multifamily for a lot of the same reasons. Um, but, but you called out just the scalability, the ability to have, um, third-party management, right. Um, the, the ability from a financing standpoint, like you said, it, it actually becomes easier to get financing and then refinance. And then you, you called out forced appreciation, right? This idea that you can actually control the value by increasing the income. And so I think you hit on a lot of key points for reasons to move to, to commercial real estate. And, and I, I also like your story because a lot of times we hear about I think a lot of the messaging that I hear, whether it's on social or other places, like you got to go big, you got to be a hundred plus units. You got to kind of go after these monster projects, um, which can get people, you know, kind of over their skis pretty quickly, but you guys were able to scale, I think in a very thoughtful way to like, what would you say? Like about 20 unit properties, things like that, that still, um, still relatively small, still kind of a nice pocket. And we'll, and we'll talk about more of your strategy around that in a little bit, but enough scale to, to give you that freedom and, and allow you to, like you said, step back as an operator, be more of that asset manager. So I, re I really like that. It sounds like you guys have found a really nice pocket there that again, it's given you, and you talked about clarifying your goal as well and kind of understanding. And I think that that's something that, you know, I've definitely gone back and forth on is, you know, you get into it and you're into the day to day and you're like, wow, you're working really hard, but, but why are you really doing this? Right. And you're doing it for more freedom. So are you, are you working yourself out of that freedom that you initially intended to do? Right. And I think that's kind of the constant balance of scaling, um, and, you know, taking on different approaches. So you got to sit down, you had that moment where this, you know, the sewage is coming out of the toilet, had to leave the barbecue, your husband did. And, and, really that checkpoint, instead of just continuing to plow forward, you guys were able to step back, sit down, kind of reconfirm your mission 
and then realign your strategy with that. So I love that. I think that's something that everybody should be doing. Just you were just conscious enough to be able to think of that. So I took all that away from from your story, I guess, is why I'm I'm summarizing all this. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons to learn there. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really easy for us now to make decisions on what projects we want to get into because we have a lot of, of like really interesting deals that come across our plate. Mm-hmm. And I think as entrepreneurs, it's really exciting to try out, you know, new areas of the business and get into, you know, Definitely. different kind of like sexy projects, right. Or something that's really interesting. And, but we always go back to this question is, is this going to get us to the next you know, level of the lifestyle that we desire? which is, again, we want to spend a couple of months a year, and, and we have been uh, a couple months a year out of the country. Mm-hmm. And so if we say, well, if we do this project, we're going to have to stay here and manage this project, then then that's a really quick no for us. And so yeah. again, um, we've turned down some really interesting partnerships and deals with really kind of interesting projects, because again, for us, it's about that lifestyle and having that freedom, the you know, even just the little things of being able to drop our daughter off at school and pick her up at two o'clock in the afternoon yeah. and pretty much be, you know, quote unquote done with work at yeah. 2 PM so that we can be out in the pool and doing family things. And yeah. so, uh, but getting like clar- clarity is really important because I think it's really easy again, as the entrepreneur to kind of get on that entrepreneurial roller coaster. And, and then you might find yourself, uh, you know, somewhere that was really far off from the direction that you had initially intended. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I mean, without that clarity, right? There's the quote: "If you don't know where you're going, anywhere, anywhere will work, right? right? Or anywhere's fine." And I think I think it's totally true. And I think you're right. As entrepreneurs, it's very easy to want to chase the next shiny object, and that can and and take on too much. And so, I what I appreciate about your story is you have found it seems a very scalable or very approachable way to to get into commercial real estate and create a lifestyle mm-hmm. that uh, that meets all of your needs w- without trying to, you know, just continue to grow for growth's sake. Um, not that you're not growing, but I mean, project size and taking on mm-hmm. all these different things, right? You've been able to stay very focused on the mission. So, so that that's wonderful. I do want to get into some more uh, specifics just, just around your strategy and sure. kind of understanding your approach a little more. So, you mentioned that you were investing in Seattle, you were investing in your backyard, and you went and bought something in Greenwood, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to, to understand. I mean, it sounds like it was really about seeking value, right? You said the properties in Seattle were, were so expensive, didn't have the type of cash flow you wanted. So you're able to find that value in Greenwood, Indiana. Um, how did you find the property out of state? And then talk about that process of going through and buying sight unseen because because that, that's super interesting. That gives me kind of a chill in my spine. <laughs> so I wanted I want to know kind of how you go through that and, and do the due diligence offsite and kind of get comfortable with a property. Sure, when I mean, it's so interesting as you're describing this, Kent, it does sound a little scary, and yet I do it every day. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's really interesting, um, and I think it really comes down to systems and processes and checklists. And so with that initial deal. 
you know, the first thing is I, I, I was kind of asking myself, where do I want to invest? I wanted to invest in a market that was very, very different than Seattle. So I was looking for more, you know, cash flow focused versus appreciation focused. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, one of the benefits of investing in, you know, the West Coast or in Seattle was my appreciation rate is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the properties, of course, you know, we're doubling every couple of years or so. And so the, you know, the values are really increasing, which then allowed us to do cash out refinances, use that money to then invest in other markets. Yeah. Um, and so. I was first kind of looking into Indianapolis because I just heard a lot of investors talking about, uh, you know, how great the returns are and that it's very cash flow focused. I also went back and, you know, ran some analysis on how Indianapolis had performed in the Great Recession. And I noticed that it just kind of remained flat. There wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of, uh, you know, price reductions or prices had gone down like they had in Seattle and some areas in Seattle yeah. prices had gone down about 30%. And so again, I wanted a, a market that was very different uh, than Seattle. And so I found an investor agent. Um, I, you know, just basically went on realtor.com and looked to find agents that had multifamily listings, found an investor agent was really kind of open to different areas in the city. I, I, again, I'd never been to Indianapolis. So I didn't really know what, uh, what areas I should be investing in. And so I just asked the question as I said, well, where's the hidden value? Where are the B class neighborhoods that everyone wants to live where the rents are going to be a little bit higher. I didn't want a super, a super cheap property in maybe like mm -hmm. a D class neighborhood where, you know, it, it, it looked really cheap and the rents were really high, but the tenant quality wasn't there. Sure. Um, and so he had mentioned to me that Greenwood was a really nice area, B class, great schools. Prices were still relatively affordable, but rents were fairly high. And so uh, I said, great. What do you have in Greenwood? He sent me that duplex. It had been on the market for some time. And so I was kind of wondering, you know, gosh, is that, is it that great of a deal if it's just been on the MLS for a while? Right. And so um, I think they might've been asking 200,000. We offered one, I think 165 and then found a couple of things at the inspection and then got them down to 155. Um, I was also shocked at how uh, inexpensive it was to renovate. And so it, you know, as mentioned, it, it, we spent about $19,000 doing all of the interiors, kitchens, bathrooms, flooring, yeah. um, you know, paint, crawl space remediation, attic remediation, uh, that would have cost probably 50,000 at the time in Seattle. So, um, you know, more than like half price of what we would pay. Sure. And so, um, but I felt like that was a really low risk investment. Um, you know, financially a low barrier to entry getting into Indianapolis. And so that was kind of the you know, the first test, just kind of dipping our toe in the water of, will this work out of state? Um, and then the other challenge was, well, so how do I oversee this project, right? It was big yeah. renovation. And so I uh, basically started interviewing property managers and asked if they would project manage, meaning they would, you know, essentially help us get bids um, and go by and check on the, the, the work every single week. And the property manager said, yes, I think we paid 10% for them to project manage. Mm -hmm. And this is what we do now. I mean, th that first deal just worked really, really well. And so we built that into our processes. So we only hire property managers that will do project management for us. So this deal that we just closed in Kentucky, we will run it. It's just a 12 unit property. We will renovate every single unit. Um, and the property manager is going to oversee that. So we already have the bids and then they'll go by there, uh, every couple of days, send us photos, give us project updates and, 
that's, yeah, that, that's kind of how we handle these renovations. Gotcha. So you, is that essentially your strategy in each market is to find a rep, find a, and a buyer's rep, if you will, to source properties for you? Yes. Yeah. So we work with agents all across the country. So I get uh, deals in my inbox pretty much every single day uh, that, that we analyze. And if it's, if it's a deal that doesn't work for us, then we have uh, an investor community that we'll share those deals with. And so it might you know, again, maybe not fit our criteria, but fits another investor's criteria quite well. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so then we have, uh, as far as like doing the due diligence, um, so a couple deals, even when we were in Europe for nine weeks, we were performing due diligence on properties um, because again, just, we follow a checklist. I have a due diligence checklist. I'm happy to share it. If anyone's interested, uh, it's about like four different tabs of the different stages of due diligence. Yeah. You know, you've got the financial due diligence, you've got the physical due diligence, you know, lease audit, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so we basically just follow a checklist and I have these agents, uh, you know, kind of help us out with photos and video. Of course we get property managers over there, uh, you know, when we're doing the third party inspections, we have the property managers show up and they'll kind of have conversations with the tenants and the report back to us on, you know, which tenants we might want to uh, terminate leases on, which tenants seem to be great tenants that they think, yeah. you know, we could just do some rent increases and basically keep them on. Um, and so between, yeah, the agent and third party, uh, you know, inspectors or um, the third party reports, um, all of our, the photos and video that we get with property management, it's pretty easy for us to make these decisions, sight unseen. Yeah. I love that. You've created again, that, that model that gives you that freedom, right? You're it's kind of the, the quintessential who, not how concept of figuring out who can do it for you. You've been able to leverage all these different parties in different markets and created a network um, that can do all this onsite work for you and get you comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious as you're going after these, these properties, um, what is, what does the deal structure look like? I mean, you guys have acquired, would you say 280? something units now? Yeah. So it's 280 units total. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, some of that is uh, through syndication that we're GPs on and then some of it's just JVs and some of it we own hundred percent. So okay. it, it really kind of depends on the deal. Um, ideally the, the ideal structure for me is to own hundred percent of the asset. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when the deal supports it, a lot of times we'll bring in a private lender have them fund, you know, close to a hundred percent of the deal. We'll give them interest only uh, mm-hmm. until we refinance. Most of the time, again, it kind of depends on the deal. Uh, most of the time we're able to refinance within maybe 12 to 18 months, pay the private lender back. And then we own a hundred percent. So I've never been one that has a certain unit count that I'm after. I don't sure. think that unit count is uh, the best like metric for success, but I know kind it's of a vanity around. metric, isn't it? What's that? Kind of a vanity metric unit well, count. It is. Well, and it's really interesting because I have, um, uh, you know, large syndicators that have reached out to me that say, oh, I'm just trying to syndicate so that I have enough money to do my own deals. <laughs> and so, because they're not making a whole lot of money on the syndication side. Mm-hmm. And so anyways, uh, so for me, it's, you know, I, I would love to own hundred percent of these assets. Um, but, you know, bring, the way that I structure that again is having a private lender fund hundred percent or a group of private lenders uh, fund hundred percent. And then I'll do the refinance, refinance them, uh, or, so do all of the work, refinance them out and own hundred percent of the asset. Um, sometimes if the deal doesn't really work for that, then we'll do JV 
And mm -hmm. so we'll bring on a capital partner who will come in, maybe they bring all of the capital and then we split the deal 50, 50. Um, so those are kind of my two preferred methods. Um, other than, you know, of course we're just doing a 1031 exchange or something like that, Sure. We'll, you know, exchange, maybe some property, some of our like residential properties that we own in Washington sure. and get into apartment complexes. Mm -hmm. So when you bring in a, a private lender in, um, do you mind sharing with us what does some of the terms look like and, and what kind of deal sizes do, does that work in? I mean, is there kind of a max number you've seen? Yeah, it depends on the private lender. Um, I I wouldn't say that there's like a max deal size. I mean, I've worked with private lenders that had, you know, a million dollars to lend out or a million dollars to work with. Um, and so typically we're doing interest only. 24 months, and it's going to be anywhere in the like six to 8% range. Um, and we just, you know, pay them monthly. Uh, of course, it, a note is recorded against the property. I had an attorney a couple of years ago, uh, draft me loan docs. We make it really, really easy for the private lender. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, you know, the attorney just updates it based on the state that we're operating in. Um, and then the private lender again, funds the deal. We pay them monthly until we refinance them. Um, so typically with that, we're not doing uh, appraisals. We're not doing, you know, loan fees and all the underwriting fees and things yeah. like that. These are just uh, individuals that are in our database, not necessarily like in the business of private lending, yeah. uh, though, you know, that could be another option for people. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of other investors, uh, you know, friends of mine that I know, you know, they'll do like a private lender second. And mm -hmm. so they'll get a bank loan, have the private lender be in second position. And so they're doing hundred percent financing essentially, and then refinancing that. And that works too. Mm -hmm. um, but I prefer to just, you know, have first deed and have that private lender, you know, finance it and then basically just refinance them. So it's a great deal for the private lender uh, because they get the collateral, of course, um, doesn't really require a whole lot of work for them. And then it's a lot better than what you can get, you know, as compared to like a CD or, you know, the stock market's way down right now. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a great deal for the, for the private lender for sure. Absolutely. And those, I mean, those are pretty solid terms at six to 8%. Uh -huh. That's not bad. So how, right. do you, how did you develop this network of, of private lenders? You said it's not necessarily people that are in the business of private lending. Right. Yeah. Um, so I started hosting a meetup group in Seattle in 2016, and I highly recommend that everyone does that. Mm -hmm. Um, essentially, you know, it would just be once a month. And it was, we started at a little local pizza joint. Uh, I think the very first meetup, maybe six people showed up. <laughs> so it was really small. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just gave case studies on properties that I had purchased, what it looks like, what the process is. We, you know, sometimes talk about different topics like related to financing, operations, due diligence, uh, deal analysis. And so I would have a lot of people come up to me and they would say, this is great. It sounds like a lot of work though. Can I just give you money and you just do what you do? And then mm -hmm. I get a return on that money. And so uh, that would, I would say be my number one source. Um, I also used to buy properties at the foreclosure auction and there was like a lot of standing around and like waiting for the trustees to come up and, you know, call out the properties. And so I met a lot of investors there as well. Um, you know, people who've been in the business for years and years and years. Sure. Um, and so, so those are two really great sources. Um, of course, conferences, uh, any kind of, you know, networking events is really, really great place to meet private lenders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that's a fantastic uh, tip and resource that, that you've developed. So next, I wanted to get into a little bit about how um, 
you know, how you manage these properties from, from afar, right? You've got properties in eight States, you guys are traveling all over the world. So, so talk a little bit about that evolution from, um, more operator to asset manager, talk about what's the difference and then talk about a little bit about your systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the difference between like an operator and an asset manager. So the operator is responsible for the day to day, right? So that would be the, uh, you know, pretty much the property manager's job. So the screening and marketing of tenants, making sure that everyone's paying, managing vendors, uh, you know, setting the rents, things like that. Uh, on the asset management side, it's all about basically, uh, you know, the return on investment. Um, so looking at, you know, ways to kind of the strategy, like the bigger picture, um, like how can we, you know, increase the revenue? How can we decrease the expenses? What are the opportunities for forcing appreciation? Um, obviously, like watching, you know, the the current, you know, debt that you have on the property um, and the ability to, you know, kind of. Uh, either like refinance or in some cases sell, do, you know, disposition with an investment. Mm-hmm. And so um, on the asset management side, uh, basically we follow up with the property managers every other week, uh, unless we have an ongoing renovation and that's every week. So it's every single Tuesday. Uh, it's having conversations with our property managers or their team, you know, kind of getting updates on how things are going. Um, and then on a monthly basis, it's a PL review. So how well are these properties performing? Are there any conversations we need to be having on these Tuesday calls with our property managers? Like, um, I'll just I'll give an example. You know, maybe uh, tenants are not paying for utilities. We are, but there's an opportunity to do like implement rubs or like a flat fee bill back for mm-hmm. utilities. So that's something that uh, a property manager may not, like they may not notice that. Um, but we will on the asset management side when we're going through these P&Ls and saying, wait, why are, why are we paying for this and not billing it back to the tenants? Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, we update a uh, scheduled real estate owned every single month. And so basically it's updating, you know, what the uh, loan balance is, obviously looking at current rents, looking at uh, any, you know, potential renewals that are coming up. Um, and then, you know, uh, I would say like, you know, debt dates when the, when the loans are going to uh, need to be refinanced um, or sold, making decisions like that. Um, and then I would say like biannually, we requote our insurance, making mm-hmm. sure that we have proper insurance and or the best rates for the insurance. And then on an annual basis, we're meeting with our attorneys, making sure that our asset protection strategy and plan uh, is still bulletproof. We haven't like missed any steps. We don't need to do any updating. Uh, having strategy call with our CPA. Uh, usually we do that in November just to make sure that we can kind of make any changes before the end of the year. And November is usually pretty quiet for these, uh, for these CPAs. Um, but I would say all in all, it's maybe just a couple of hours every month. Um, mm-hmm. Not too much work just because again, everything is like scheduled. Um, it's kind of foolproof. You know, when we onboard a property, it's, you know, here's the HUD for the bookkeeper, bookkeeper does their part. And then by the, the well, usually the 15th of the 20th of the month, we get the P&Ls that we review and, and just kind of go from there. Gotcha. Well, yeah, it sounds like a well-oiled machine, right? And you've been able to develop those processes to, to check all the boxes. I love you mentioned checking in with insurance, checking in with the attorney, checking in with the CPA. I think those are critical things mm-hmm. uh, that maybe don't get talked about enough, but you guys right. are just being proactive in all those places. So yeah. It's important. Very good. Well, awesome. Well, I, Jennifer, I appreciate you sharing so much about 
the inside workings of your business and the strategy and, and helping people understand how they can, how they can build out their own portfolio and get, get their own financial freedom, right. And, and travel to Europe and hey, maybe they'll see you guys while they're out there. <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> so before I let you go, I want to take you through our keys to success round. Four questions to ask. The first one is, if you were going to invest in someone else's deal and you could only ask them one question, what would that one question be? Tell me about your worst deal. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. That's a tough one to, uh, it is. tough one to answer, right? I mean, nobody wants to talk about the uh, skeletons in the closet. Right. Well, and if they don't have an answer for that, it tells me that they haven't been around long enough to no, <laughs> experience some, I mean, that's you know, a good every... point. There's going to be something, right? You do this right. long enough. Yes. Yeah, for sure. What are you most proud of in your career? The freedom that we have the, uh, in, in our, in our early thirties that we've been able to, uh, essentially, you know, build this portfolio, leaving a legacy to my daughter, um, and just yeah, having the freedom to basically do what we want when we want to and with whom we want to. Yeah, I love that. What's a book that everybody should read? The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. I think I've read it six or seven times. Uh, anytime I feel stuck in any area of business, yeah, I pull out that book, read a couple chapters, and I have my answer. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you guys are living that model, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then last but not least, what is your number one key to success? Relationships. Everything is all about relationships. Uh, as you had, had mentioned, it, it's the who, not how. Mm -hmm. And so again, uh, going back to if, if I'm ever dealing with a challenge or stuck, uh, rather than focus on the how, like, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to figure this out? It's who do I know that has been here and done that, that I can uh, basically tap into and help me, you know, figure this out. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic lesson and mm -hmm. something that as an entrepreneur can be difficult at times to yes. one, ad admit you need help and, and two, not just try to dive in yourself and fix it right at all costs. 100%. So very good lessons learned. I appreciate everything you shared with us today. If folks want to learn more about you guys, about your business, it sounds like you've got a network going on. How can they reach you? Yeah, my website is addicted to ROI.com. And so we have a lot of different resources on the website if you want to learn a little bit more about our model and how we do it. Yeah, it's all on the website. Awesome. We'll make sure that's linked below so people can access that and find more out about you guys. But Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.